Hello and welcome back to Up Next to Lily and Tim. Today we're going London calling. We're talking to a, a very special friend of mine, best man at my wedding, and uh, a good friend of, of Dot's and mine, a very good friend of mine for a long time, Mr. Robert Pritchett, a.k.a. Bobby, all the way from London. And um, now Bobby, Bobby started, I, I think I first met Bobby as a music teacher at, at my school, Barker College, and then pretty soon after um, a few years there, Bobby scarped over to London, has been there ever since. So, uh, And he's carved out quite an impressive career and run into lots of people along the way. So it's, he's, a, he's a jovial fellow with a, lot of, a, lot of, um, a great sense of humour, uh, great skills in the music world. And um, is, I think now he's the deputy head of a, of a very prestigious school in London as well, but has had come in contact with a lot of people along the way. Uh, welcome, Mr. Bobby Pritchett. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Lily. <laughs> well, actually, it's not morning, it's evening there, but it's morning here. <laughs> <laughs> now, mate, it's been, it's a been a, a, sunny day in, a, a nice sunny day in London? A lovely sunny day. Yeah, yeah it's going to be 36 again. Three days of 36 degrees, which is unprecedented in London, but um, I love it. It's really nice. Uh, are the three-cornered yeah. three handkerchiefs, sorry, the four-cornered handkerchiefs out in force, mate? <laughs> well, they are. I mean, and you see this, and the sort of... Um, Sandals with socks on, and um, the English don't deal with the feet very well at all. Um, so uh, you see some sights walking around the, the <laughs> town, but they're cool. They're happy. <laughs> now, mate, you've spent. We won't. We won't. Lovely put any, white legs. Lovely white <laughs> legs. Now we won't put any ages and times on timelines in this, but but you've spent plenty of years in in London after leaving Australia. Um, and look, I guess as everybody yep. knows, and if they don't appreciate, London is still one of the great cultural and historically important cities of the world. What's what's the allure for you, mate? What was the the real passion going there in the first place? Can you tell us about that? Yes. Well, I was um, as you know, I was uh, director of music at the school you attended, and um. I was fortunate to go into that position straight after graduating from university. So I was 21, I think, came up from Melbourne. And um, I was there six years. And I just thought there had to be more to life than just staying there. I mean, I, I just felt I needed a change and needed a challenge. I wasn't sure what that challenge was going to be. But I had visited England three or four years beforehand and loved England and loved Europe. And I thought, okay, I'll go back. I remember the head teacher at the time, he said to me, well, why don't you take a year sabbatical? And I said, mm, just not sure, but I, I want to be committed to a year. I just see. And, of course, um, I didn't, never did come back. I stayed and I stayed. And uh, <laughs> the longer I stayed, um, the harder it was to think of coming back. Although I still um, think of Peter Allen's song, I still call Australia home. Um, and it is home. If ever I've gone back to Australia, I've always said I'm going home. Um, I have an Australian passport. I've never converted to a British passport um, and love Australia. But there was just something, as you said, it's the cultural capital of Europe and it gave me enormous opportunities, things that I would never have thought of dreaming about in Australia. Um, and because I was lucky to meet a lot of people um, who were influential in, in the musical world and um, they helped me. And uh, so I'm still here after all these years. Yeah, look, as you say, sort of a cultural capital of the world, I guess. But I guess arriving there first up, uh, you know, not knowing too many people, but obviously in, in love with the city itself and, and England in general, um, must have been exciting and, and scary at the same time, yeah? Yeah, it was, because, you know, there were times when um, uh, money was tight. And I thought, well, and, and standards were very different to what we had in Australia. I mean, you'd, you'd look for a flat. I looked for a flat with a friend of mine, and we were appalled 
on how much it was going to cost us a month, which in those days was £280 a month. So I mean, now if you're renting a flat um, in London, even one bedroom would cost you probably a minimum £2,000, so $4,000 a month. So I was a bit shocked about the cost of living here. Wow. Um, wow. I did all sorts of jobs. Yeah, I know. It was enormous. Um, and, of course, the standard was not what we expected. I mean, showers didn't exist. And so young lads coming from Australia who wanted a shower, we didn't want to sit in the dirty bath water. Um, and, you know, everything was sort of just not right. Um, but, you know, I found a great flat and I stayed in for many, many years. And then I moved upstairs to another flat. Um, which I think you visited, Tim, and um, I just, I don't know, it was it was hard. Um, I did lots of different things. I taught music in schools. I taught music privately. I played in um, nightclubs, um, and I even worked for Shell, the oil company, at one point, because I decided, yeah, I thought I'd give um, music a miss, and I'll try something else in my life, and um, I did that. Always had work, though. That was one thing I always had. Just managed to pay your rent. And, um, of course, uh, yeah, it just like, got a better and better after a while. Oh, wow. Um, tell us more about being a music teacher and piano man at ven- venues in London. Was it daunting? No, not really, because I'd done that for six years, really, um, at Barker College. So, you know, I had sort of taught right across the age range mm-hmm. up to the high school certificate. And then um, I met um, the mother of Andrew Lloyd Webber, Jean Lloyd Webber. She was teaching music in a prep school in London, which is from, no, it's a pre-prep from um, four to eight years of age. And she said she wanted to retire and would I take that over, uh, which I did. And um, then her husband um, was the director of the music at the London College of Music. And... Um, so she said, well, you know, we'll organise you to get some more work and you'll be lecturing. So I was teaching four to eight-year-olds and then I was also teaching sort of um, graduates from sort of 18 to 21-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and of course, at Sparta, I taught some um, 11 to 18-year-olds. So I really taught the whole range of it. And, um, and also, it was great then um, to start teaching privately uh, piano pupils. I've got, I built up a very... Um, what's the word, a, a good clientele and they kept recommending me to their friends and um, so it went on from there. Hold those thoughts Bobby, we're, we're jumping ahead a little bit and um, Lily's got a question for you about uh, Jean. Yeah, what was Jean Lloyd Webber like? Um, she was a character actually she was a <laughs> highly intelligent um, individual but she didn't go for convention, she was very socialist in many ways and yet you know she she had a sort of, um, uh, she was quite well off and she had a very good upbringing, but she wasn't into any frills or butters and, and Andrew became famous. Um, she remained king. She would um, tie her hair in a, in a rubber band and she would just walk around. Chandler. She looked like a bag lady, actually. We used to see her in London and she'd be carrying a bag and um, feeding pigeons on the street. You wouldn't have had a clue anything about her, but... Um, she was a very um, caring person. She actually loved challenges, and she, for some reason, she always took up young men as challenges. I mean, there's a concert pianist called John Lill, um, and she met John Lill in the East End of London. I don't know what she was doing there, but she found him as a young lad playing in a pub, 
So she took him under her wing. She, I, she gave him a flat in London. She paid for him to go to the Royal College of Music. Um, so he was one of her big projects. And uh, I think when John had sort of made it in the world, she was looking for another project. So I became the project. <laughs> I remember actually, Bobby, when I was over there, and I met Jean. I remember the, the, the rubber band, in, rubber band in the in the bun at the back of her hair, and the ponytail, and the the big glasses. But yeah. and I, she, I think at the time she'd also bought you a new fridge, hadn't she as well? I think from memory. <laughs> she had, she had. She bought me a new fridge. You're right. I mean, my and then one day we were driving somewhere. Um, I can't remember. Oh, I know. We, we drove down to Dorset because. Um, her brother had drowned there when he was a young lad, and she wanted to go and see where he drowned, and there was a sort of memorial up. And we came back, and the car I had at the time um, broke down. And so she said, oh, what are you going to do about this? And I said, I have no idea. I was call out the RAC, and they'll fix it. And they came out and said, um, it's going to cost you a fortune. It's not worth fixing. So Jean then said to me, right, okay, we'll go up and look for a new car for you. Um, wow. And she went bought me another car. Wow. wow. So that was the sort of thing she yeah, I know. And I mean, I said to her, you know, well, you know, I can't afford this at the moment, but I'll pay you back. Um, and I think I gave her some money um, each week. Well, she took it one week and she wouldn't take it anymore. She said, no, I don't need it. Um, that's fine. Um, so uh, that's the sort of thing she would do. What a great, Incredible. What a great woman. Um, can you tell us, obviously, about you know, a very famous um, couple of sons there, and especially Andrew Lloyd Webber. Uh, can you tell us, I mean, as I said, I, I said, I think, with Tim Rice, Jesus Christ Superstar, Joseph in Technicolor, Dreamcoach, Starlight Express, a lot of very famous um, productions he put together. Can you tell mm-hmm. us, I mean, through Gene meeting Andrew Lloyd Webber and then his, his then wife at the time, Sarah Brightman, and, and what, sort of, what sort of characters and, I guess, influences they were in the music industry in, Lon- in London, England in general? But also, um, I guess, coming across their uh, paths as well. Yeah, well, it was interesting because um, at that point, I think Jean said to me, you know, uh, what we need in this country is um, musical theatre for young children. She said, um, Andrew's been successful, and by that stage, he got the power of theatre. So basically, Jean suggested um, I set up a, a theatre company for young children, which is known as the Action Children's Theatre. And then she said, well, come on, you can compose for them, you can write musicals which will be popular with children rather than adults and um, through that um, Andrew said to me well if you want putting on in the West End you can have my theatre I'll give it to you free of charge and so I did that for a long time and I I wrote several shows with Jean writing the lyrics and then um, her husband had written a a musical I had never finished called Pinocchio and I was rather touched for me to finish it off rather than Andrew to finish it off so we did lots of shows together. I think you might have been to some of them, Tim. Um, I did, um, actually, mate. I, I, did go to, I did go to the theatre out in Shaftesbury Avenue there, I believe. That's it, yep. Uh, I, I remember and going I mean, to the shows, yeah. Yeah the, whole, yeah, the whole family were extremely music. Music was their life. And Billy, her husband, Andrew's father, as I said, was director of music at the London College of Music. He always said to Andrew, if you've got any real talent, don't go anywhere near a music college. It'll only destroy it, which is interesting advice for a guy who's at the head of music college. So Andrew never did go to music college, and um, wow. he just had an ability, and his father was right. You know, had it put him through music college, um, it would have probably destroyed his natural talents. 
Wow, that's an interesting sort of angle. Anyway, yeah, from a man who was yeah. who was running the place. Now, listen, you, you, you happened as yeah. you said. You mentioned you had some fairly you, you developed some fairly influential clients when you when you were teaching music. Uh, and then I think it was it was Lord Snowden you came across first, which I, I think from memory you told me he came and asked for sort of uh, lessons for his kids. If, if correct me if I'm wrong, but then that led into uh, teaching the princes William and Harry, and obviously your your encounters with uh, Diana the Princess of Wales. That must have been a a pretty uh, amazing experience for you. Well, it was. And in fact, um, if I remember rightly, I was trained for ballet classes. And I do think your mother came to me one day when I was trained for these ballet classes. And we, she saw and met um, Countess of Snowden, Lord Snowden's second wife, and um, her daughter, or their daughter, called Frances, who was about five at this time. And uh, Lady Snowden came up and asked me, um, just, just chatting, really. And then she just said, oh, do you ever think about teaching piano? Um, I said, well, I hadn't thought about it, but I might as well give it a go. So I did that, and then um, through, well, through Weatherby School, where Jean was head of music, when she left, um, I went in there, and that seemed to be the school that um, the Royals were sending their children to. So I started teaching um, Alexander Ulster, the Earl of Ulster, whose father was the Physic Roster, and then I taught Lord Freddie Windsor, son of um, Prince Michael and Princess Michael of Kent, and then I think, yeah, and then I think William and Harry started there when they were about four. Um, and as a result, I obviously got to know the mother because, uh, and father, but the mother particularly, because she was just like any other parent. She would do the school run in the morning, she'd turn up um, in the morning, and uh, she'd often stop on the stairs and have a chat. And I remember one day I was making coffee and she walked past the classroom and said to me, mm, that smells nice, I wouldn't mind a cup. She came in and, and she had a sip of coffee. I mean, she's just um, a really interesting person. And then over the years, I got to know them better. I remember playing or being invited to a party and, at Kensington Palace. Um, it was a party to celebrate her separation um, from the Prince of Wales. <laughs> not too, but she gave a big party and then there was the piano. She had a lovely grand piano. I think there had been photos in the... Um, tabloids over the years with a boy sitting at the piano and um, uh, I played the piano. What I didn't realise is she had told the butler um, to make sure my glass was topped up with whiskey. So by the time I'd been playing the piano that evening, I was all over the place. I mean, <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> playing pissed at and Kensington Palace. <laughs> yeah, she just said to me, said to him, keep copying his glass with whiskey, he'll be happy, he'll keep playing. Um, and then because I told Harry to play the piano um, when he was at school. Um, and I taught William and Harry, both in class music, but Harry particularly, um, uh, to play the piano. I don't know whether he even remembers that these days. But Matt, with as far as Diana was concerned, I mean, considered the people's princess. Obviously, as you say, you know, felt like a, a drop of coffee. Made sure your whiskey glass was full. But I, I guess a real sort of uh, she could really relate to everybody, couldn't she? And that was, I guess, that was the beauty of her. Hey, Bob, when she when you had a, a chance to sort of, uh, yeah. uh, I guess, to interact with her. She was very easy. I mean, you, you didn't really feel you were in the presence of princess. She was just like a mother, any mother, and um, I think she she was determined that her children were going to be brought up. Um, as any other children, she wasn't uh, at all pretentious, um, just absolutely easy to talk to. I remember um, being invited to dinner at um, oh, the name of the restaurant, um, 
you were talking about that the other day. Oh, San Lo- is it San Lorenzo? Yeah. San Lorenzo. Yeah, uh, San Lorenzo. And um, it, was, it was a family party, really. I think it was sort of a, um, Ken Wolf, her detective, was there, and um, her mother and her brother, and um, I don't think her sister was there. But there was a piano. He had arranged, Ken had arranged to get a piano, a grand piano, up in the upstairs dining room. And I played that, and he sang, and, she, and Princess played the piano and sang along, and we had a real um, fun, beautiful evening. Well, I got home quite late that night. Um, and the next morning, when I woke up under my doorstep, there was a thank you note for coming along and being part of the evening and playing the piano. So she, she'd clearly gone home that night, written the thank you note, and I don't know, she must have sent her chauffeur around, and we just had by hand on the envelope. And she put it under the door. And I thought, what, what an incredible thing to do. Didn't need to do it, but she did. And that was complete. She's just a very normal, human, lovely person. I know lots have been written about her. And um, okay, and, and I remember the stories. Um, people found her difficult, but I didn't. So I'm, I'm always a great believer in taking people as you find them in the story. Hundred percent, mate. You, t- you you treat people the way they treat you know they treat you, and, and and you sort of I guess you appreciate people the way they treat you as well, right? Yeah. And uh, look, I guess it must have been tricky yeah. though, Bobby. I suppose as your as your career is blossoming and stuff, it would have been great to be able to publicise that you were the uh, I guess the, the teacher of all these royal kids and things. But obviously at the time, you know, with security, that, that wasn't possible, was it? No, it wasn't possible. And at that time, um, the IRA was there. Yeah. And um, and you know, as I said, she was a a profuse letter writer and um, I just thought well one day you know when I'm not around these letters are going to be good because go where so I, I'm determined that those letters should be returned back to William and Harry um, there's nothing in it that I wouldn't want people to see but at the same time um, they are private and I wouldn't like them to give them the wrong hands and just be sold um, on the market so uh, um, you know there are Certain things you obviously can't talk about, I won't talk about, but um, yep. I think expression is important. I think they value that. And I also think, um, coming from Australia, I wasn't in awe of the royals or titled people. I mean, came across so many people with titles, and because of the aristocracy, each generation has a different surname. I used to just think, oh God, they've all gone through endless divorces and they've got kids from different marriages and everything. What I didn't realise is because I'm living to the aristocracy means you, you, um, your grandfather's the Duke of Grafton, your father's the Earl uh, Houston, yours, by chance, um, it, it just so it goes on. And I just think we weren't impressed with that. We, we didn't grow up with in Australia. And I think they value that because it wasn't hungry to sort of publicise all this. I did share it, of course, between close friends, but that was the end of that. No airs and graces, exactly, yeah. mate. Now I hear yeah. that. Yeah. Now, I hear that Harry was a bit of a character. Are there any funny stories from Harry? No, well, Harry had many funny stories, I have to say. I mean, he was a character. Um, but once again, I don't know, when I was teaching them, the boys were really aware of their status in society. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I don't know. I, they never came across like that. But I do remember one day, um, um, Harry was probably about five, and... I had all my class of 20 boys in front of me, and there were two boys mucking around. I mean, I think they kept sort of grabbing each other in the private parts, and I sort of said to them, excuse me, what are you two, what are you two doing? And before they had a chance to answer, Harry said, 
they're having a fizzle. They love each other. <laughs> um, so I, I had to say to Harry, that's enough from you, young man. Uh, and I mentioned it to his mother um, at the end of the day. She said, oh, dear. She said, he's probably heard me say something like that. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah. But um, no, uh, the best boys were very normal through the time. And I think they are, I think, well, certainly I noticed now with William, he just comes across as he always did. I mean, a, a very normal, um, caring individual. No airs and graces. I mean, he's wearing... He goes out without a tie and um, just, you know, sh- shirts. And um, unlike his father, he's still very traditional. But um, I think um, the boys are just um, trying to settle in and just creating a new style of royal family over here. Which is funny. The one thing I yeah, I did remember, though, Bobby, you did tell me. I remember talking about Harry and and, and, and Prince Harry and, and some of his uh, stories. I, I I did love the one. I think he once told me that he was in class, put his hand up, and you, you said, "Yes, Harry, what do you want?" And I think he said to you, "Mr. Pritchett, what colour's your poo?" <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. Well, I, I wasn't quite sure whether I should. Yes, I wasn't quite sure whether I should mention that. But, um, oh, you got it. Yeah, he had a lot, lots of things he would come up with. But like all boys, he was just no different than any other boy. All boys, all, all children say some very funny things to you. <laughs> no, no, I guess, I mean, there's some of, some of the, the, the highlights, I guess, of, of um, teaching the royals and things. But uh, look, I guess, and I guess in your eyes, I mean, they're still, the royals are still pretty culturally significant, aren't they, in, the, in their time? It's just like, it, it's a bit strange at the moment, obviously, with Harry sort of heading off to Los Angeles with, with Megan anyways. Do you think from a, I guess, you know, being, a, being a sort of a, a royalist anyway, do you think from that perspective it's been a bit, bit sad on the family and how it's, how it's evolved? Yes, I think it has been sad on the family. Um, and I think, you know, they obviously are keeping fairly tight lips about it, but I'm sure the Queen um, is very sad about it. Um, and I just feel that Harry kind of just lost a little bit. I mean, he, I can understand him wanting privacy, um, because I think he blamed the press for a lot of his mother's unhappiness. Yeah. And um, ultimately, you know, he may have blamed the press for her death. Uh, who knows? I mean... But I think um, the royal family is important in this country. Uh, it attracts a lot of visitors. People love the pomp and ceremony. I mean, you never tire of it. This is an incredible thing. I can still be driving around the mall and suddenly I see changes of the guard after all these years. And I think, wow, society just watch that. I mean, and, and state occasions here, I mean, unbelievable sort of pomp and ceremony that goes on and the precision of it. It's colorful. Um, it's moving, it's emotional, um, and I just think um, the Queen has been a fantastic Queen. She's kept the royal family going, and I think um, she's accepted and prepared also William to take it into the next century. And um, um, I think, you know, it will live and it will carry on. Um, it's just a little bit sad about Harry. I just hope that he finally gets his act together and perhaps realises what he really wants to do in life and maybe. You know, he's going through a difficult stage at the moment. But um, we, we miss him over here. Um, but, you know, that's life. And um, I'm not sure that Merrick is the place he really wants to be. I think he misses his own sort of um, army mates and all the ceremonies that he was involved in here. But um, time will tell with that one. 
Hopefully we see him back in, in yeah. England. And look, I know, I know, you know as, as you mentioned, mate, all the Royals. I mean, I certainly don't tire of it either as far as, you know, the, the, every time the, the thrill of seeing Buckingham Palace, uh, you know, I remember going with my mum to Althorpe, actually, you know, Diana's home. Diana's home yep. And and, um, and that was that was fantastic. And I think for Lily's sake, you know, go and see Changing of the Guards and, and, and seeing Buckingham Palace. I mean, it, it is, it's part of our history, isn't it? I mean, I know there's splits in this country as far as, you know, the the, uh, the Republic and that sort of thing, but I think the Royals have been important to us. But um, now, now listen, mate, you, yeah. you, you, you Sorry, Bobby, go on. Yeah, no, you don't tire of it. That's no. the inevitable thing. I mean, no. um, you just you just don't tire. It's just it's new and fresh every time you see it. Yeah, and, and look, I think the, one of the other things you, you sort of mentioned before, you said um, you mentioned Ken Wharf. I mean, obviously, a, a big part of, of as Diana's personal bodyguard. I mean, he he was he became a friend yeah. of yours as well, didn't he? He was, a, and I've had the I think I had the pleasure with you actually. We drove to. He might have even been Kensington Palace. One of the trips we went over, and we met him. Met him there, and he met him at the gates, and he came out, and we went out for dinner together. I mean, uh, uh, another friend there, and he must have had some great stories along the way as well. But being Dinah's personal personal bodyguard for all those years as well, and Ken became a good friend of yours, yeah. Yeah, he, he did, and you know, also he was sort of he was very discreet. Um, obviously, you know, we didn't talk about it much, um, and often uh, he would um, take her. Well, he used to take her back to. Um, Holhern Court, which was um, not far from where I live. Uh, she was, that was her flat before she got married, and she'd go and have dinner with friends. And then he'd come down to me, and uh, we'd we'd have a sort of well, we'd have a few drinks when I think about it. But um, <laughs> he would then he would then wait for her to call him, and then he'd go back and pick her up. Um, he probably wasn't driving actually, but uh, yeah, we got to know each other. And Ken also had a great interest in music. He's, he's got a fantastic voice. And um, he recorded a few songs with me, and um, I think he would have been an opera singer had he not been a policeman. And um, wow. he had a really, a really interesting career because when he was a young police, police Bobby on the streets, he had been involved in lots of difficult times and riots. And so I think he was awarded um, the Queen's Medal. Um, medal. He might have been the Victoria Cross for his service to Diana, but um, he was also rewarded by um, being such a good cop on the streets and dealing with issues that um, he was promoted to an inspector, and then that's when he became Diana's personal bodyguard. And her confidant at that time, too, because you only had to walk in pictures, and Ken's always in the pictures. He was always in the pictures. I, I did some research on him because having met him that time, but I remember reading something. He did. He did make a very um, poignant observation. I, I think when 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 the princess decided not to have a, a bodyguard in there, and I think Ken Ken sort of felt that not having a bodyguard that wouldn't have happened. That the um, her, her tragic passing wouldn't have happened had she had the bodyguard there. She would never have got in that car and that, and that sort of side of it. I, I mean, I know a lot of people blame the the press chasing her, but it sounds like what went on what went on there was was um, with a the bodyguard there that wouldn't have she wouldn't have got in that car that night. Yeah, I think um, he would have aired on caution and um, um, he would have sort of seen it from a, another perspective. And um, I mean, I know she used to sort of, uh, she loved, she loved fun in some kind of way. And I mean, through her, I used to have to buy, if you believe, I don't really remember them at school, things called stink bombs. And um, <laughs> she loved having the stink bombs in the, in the royal car when she was travelling to a town or something and wave and she'd let it off and everybody in the car couldn't do a damn thing about it they couldn't hold their nose couldn't wave <laughs> a handkerchief in and she found this hilarious she said you know they're all saying oh god stink and she said keep smiling just keep waving um, 
continues to take me all right. This time she gets to play a ping pong for the princess. Um, <laughs> and I mean, yeah, she she she, um, she had a lot of fun, and uh, um, he joined in with fun too. He was the right sort of person for her at the time. <laughs> I remember stink bombs. You let a stink bomb off in, in New Orleans with uh, Dottie and I one time, just on our, after our honeymoon, or soon after we got married, Bobby, I think, in a crowd down there. Much to, yeah, much to, yeah. much to the consternation of Americans yeah. that didn't know what to think. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember, I remember letting one off in school once. Um, as a joke, and sort of then, you know, all, all the kids were starting to hold their nose and carry on. And the Bertha came around. She said, Oh my God, I'm going to ring the guest board straight away. We've got a guest league. And before I had a chance to say, No, it was me. Um, she had the guest board in checking for the guest league. The guest league. So I hear you had an interesting encounter with a former Beatle. And at the time, you didn't know who he was. Tell us about that story. Um, well, it was um, David Emmanuel, who designed the society and the strip. I taught his son at school, so I got to know him, and now I was teaching Oliver at home. And he said to me, a friend of mine um, would like to know if he teach his son. And I said, oh, okay, fine. Give me his name, and he said, you know, his name is George Harrison. He lives up in, I think, Maidenhead, which is a bit out of London. Um, and I don't know how old his son was. And I said, um, okay. So I phoned this guy called George Harrison, and he asked me, would I be interested in teaching his son music? And I said, well... I'm pretty busy at the moment. I mean, I'll see how I get on, but uh, it's, you know, it means me driving up there. And um, uh, so it's been, I thought about it and I thought, well, I'm really, I don't know who this guy is. I mean, I might as well <laughs> oh uh, just phone him up. <laughs> Sorry, I, um, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do it. And I was telling a friend of mine that, and she said to me, do you know who he is? And I said, well, no, I think his name's George Harrison. She said, I'm going to say, she said, he's one of the Beatles. <laughs> like rock and roll royalty, really Bobby, you knock back. You knock back rock yeah. and roll royalty, mate. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know why I didn't think about it. I mean, had they said to me John Lennon or Ringo Starr, I probably I would have known who they were, but I don't know why I didn't um, think of George Harrison I mean, at all. He was, probably, he was probably the quieter of the Beatles, Bobby, I suppose. <laughs> okay, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, um, yeah, it's probably, but, uh, I mean, you know, he's done lucky now in his 30s or even 40s. Yeah, I'd say so. Ago. I'd say so now. It's funny. I mean, obviously being a classical pianist, Bobby, but you've also sort of bumped into a lot of sort of, and I say like like George Harrison, the chances there, a few rock and rollers as well. And I remember I was out with you one night. We went to Sticky Fingers when we ran into Bill Wyman, one of the original members of the Rolling yeah. Stones. Yeah, and I mean, actually, the odd thing is that um, in the last five years, I was teaching, well, I wasn't teaching because I'd been um, deputy head of the school, but, um, oh, no, I've forgotten his name, um, Nina, his daughter, and uh, um, Ronnie Wood, Ronnie Wood. Yeah. Um, his granddaughter went to school. And, um, you know, over the years, we've had some people like that. Some from school, we had um, uh, Lily Allen. Lily Allen? Known as oh, Lily yeah. Owen. Yeah, she, she came to our school. Um, I remember teaching her, but she was known as Lily Owen in those days. I don't quite know mm-hmm. where the Owen came from, but um, okay. same person. Then um, I was asked to teach um, the son of a woman. Um, I forgot his name. I think it was, she 
Cameron. I don't know if Cameron was his surname or first name, but um, uh, his mother um, spoke to me and I met her several times. She said, would you teach him at home? What I didn't realize was that she was called Mary Austin and she lived with Freddie Murphy for years. So I was going around oh. to their house up in Kensington and teaching um, uh, her son, Alexander Cameron. I've now got his name completely. But um, I met Freddie and I had the tour who he was. Um, you know, didn't know anything about him at all. But, you know, I, I, I used to think, well, I'm either stupid or sick. But what I actually realized is there was a period in my life when I was purely classical. I was training to be a classical pianist. Right, I was yeah. trained mm. to be a uh, degree. And so I was completely out of the pop world. I had no idea. I wasn't interested in listening to it um, for many years. And then, so, I mean, I've been a bit slow catching up. But once I <laughs> learned about Mercury, I mean, I've loved his music and, and listened to it all and everything. But, you know, um, I was a little bit slow about that. In those days, and I didn't really know who he was. But, um, absolute so, genius, absolute, absolute genius he was, Bobby. I did some work a few years ago with with yeah. John, with John Reed, who was who was both uh, Elton John's manager and Freddie and Freddie Mercury's manager. I remember uh, uh, John told us that he had Freddie Mercury had a keyboard built into his headboard in his bed to write some of these tunes in the middle of the night, and he would sit up right. and start. I never, pl- did, I never tried. I never got to his bedroom, so thank God. <laughs> Yeah. But interesting sort of characters. I mean, Bill Wyman, Bill. I mean, Ronnie Wood made, uh, say, George Harrison, and uh, you know, sort of uh, and meeting sort of uh, Freddie Mercury. Some real rock and roll royalty there, mate. But I guess, look, yeah. just just yeah. casting back to your school days. I mean, being at the, at the Cavendish School, if you don't mind us saying. I mean, you're in sort of the edge of Camden Town. There, you're real. It was one of the real epicenters, of, I guess, the music scene with uh, in the early days of punk rock. And you you were in London when punk rock was still going, and then obviously Britpop with people, you know, bands like Oasis, and then. Down to one of one of my all time favourites favourite lady singers, Amy Winehouse from from that sort of neck of the woods. A real sort yeah. of a mixing pot there, isn't it? Of of great singers. It is indeed. I mean, Amy Winehouse actually lived around the corner from the school, and um, um, so I don't think I ever remember seeing her. But um, it, it's quite a cosmopolitan area. I mean, I live about uh, well, on the other side of London, really, and I mean, so it's been. A bit of a hike to get to the school, but in fact, I've been associated with the school. Uh, well, I think ever since I arrived. I mean, I used to teach one morning a week there, and then over the years, they wanted me to teach more, and then they helped me become director of music, and then I became director of studies, and then became deputy head, and now I'm moving on to becoming acting head. Um, and it's it's a great area. We've got all the markets there. Um, it's dead at the moment, as you can imagine, because yeah. some tourists are not coming to. But uh, um, and it's really sad to see that you've got Regent uh, Canal there and you've got Regent Park, um, great area to go and um, a very diverse area. And um, I think you know it's um, yeah, been something that I've really enjoyed being associated with this school. I can't believe uh, how many years this has been um, unbelievable. But uh, um, and I will finish my days there. I haven't turned out. I'm like the inevitable Mr. Chips. Um, so what has kept you in London after all these years? Uh, Lily, it's exciting. Every day is exciting. Nothing's ever boring. I mean, I know that can depend on personalities too, that you find things boring. But as I was saying before, just walking down the street, um, I love the diversity, the cultural diversity. Um, I love mm. the parks in 
in London. I mean, I know we've got them all in Australia. I have no doubt. And Australia's changed an awful lot since I was there because um, I went to Melbourne University. I remember around the area of Melbourne University, Park, um, Parkville and Charlton, um, they were all run-down houses. And going back there to Australia, of course, they're all very smart, upmarket restaurants of different sort of nationalities. And the cuisine in Victoria and Australia is fantastic. But here, I don't know, it's just you never tire. And then you suddenly sort of go yeah. somewhere and you see something and you say, oh, gosh, you know, I remember that. Or there's always something new to do. Um, you might, I mean, there are things that I haven't done in London um, and in England, actually. And I just think, oh, you know, I haven't been to um, the British History Museum for a long time or the British Library. And um, then you go in there and then suddenly in the library you suddenly see the um, books and library collection of Henry VIII. You see, my God, here are these books that used to be in Buckingham Palace or wherever he lived. Wow. Um, and just it's constant sort of the history of the country and, and the, the sort of um, everything about it, really. I just can't um, tell you how fantastic it is. Um, and you could go to many museums. I went to a museum the other day um, where George Frederick Handel used to live. Um, and I thought, I've never been here before. I didn't know. But it just suddenly, you think, my God, I'm going back to the sort of 17th century when this same British composer sat there and wrote music. Um, it's just everything. Um, Fantastic. It's a great, it's, you say, it's a great mixing pot, Bobby, and it's a great cultural uh, place. And, and yeah. I think, look, I think we in Australia, I mean, we all, you know, being Australians yourself as well, I mean, we, we love Australia, but look, I have a hankering. I guess um, having been born in Portsmouth, England myself, you know, there's always that, it's weird, there's always that little element of me that wants to go back there and, 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 and do something there and, and I guess create there. And if I can't do it, get, get, uh, get my offspring to create something there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're very. <laughs> 40s. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm about fourth or fifth generation Australian, but um, and I haven't managed. I, I think I did trace ancestors back to Warwickshire, and I think an ancestor was um, he was a convict. He came out to Australia uh, because he was caught poaching, and so he shot the gamekeeper. Um, so he was transported out to Australia. So I, I've got that far. But I mean, you know, um, and as I said, Australia is home. It always will be. Um, people say to me, you know, or even coming through um, immigration at, at the airport, the immigration officers will say, you know, well, you live here all these years, why don't you have a British passport? Yeah. And I just say, well, you know, I'm not British. I mean, I love everything written. Um, and I sort of, um, I bought a T-shirt recently, which I, I like. It says, um, I may live in England, but my story started in Australia. And uh, <laughs> I'm quite proud to put that down. Yeah. Look, you're hundred percent right, and that's probably why a lot of the the, the British have, have warmed to you because they like that that they like that sort of Australian point of view. I suppose it isn't it isn't stuck up. It isn't there's no airs and graces and that sort of side of it. I guess isn't it, mate? Really, that appeals. Yeah, it is. Because, yeah, and no, exactly. And um, you know, you notice that I think we were just all brought up that way. We all lived in harmony. It didn't matter what your background was um, in Australia. Uh, nobody really cared. I mean, you know, interesting when you first when I first came to English. I mean, the first question they would ask you is, well, what school did you go to? I mean, people were interested in your background and, and they make an assumption about you and your lifestyle as soon as they knew what school you went to. <laughs> that, that seems to gone now. It's like the old Etonians and the Harrow boys. I mean, 
um, people used to always say, oh, God, he went to Harrow or he went to Eton. So he obviously comes from upper class background. But that's no longer the case. I mean, there's a great, it seems to be leveling out in society, which is great to see. It is. Although yeah. somebody once said to me, and which prison did you come out of? <laughs> when, <laughs> when you're referring to you know, the English, I said, hang on, I was born in Portsmouth. Settle down. <laughs> Um, so I love singing, as, as you know. Um, what advice would you give me? And should I come to London? Um, not yet, Lily. No, not yet. I mean, you should come to London and visit it. You know, um, it's interesting, the singing, because um, a girl's voice really doesn't get to the point of being trained properly and, and seriously until she's about 17 or 18 mm-hmm. and peaks at around their 30s. Some people don't realise that. Um, mm. And so what I would do with you um, is you enjoy singing, you keep singing, you're having lessons, um, and I think you were playing the guitar. I would certainly have another instrument because <laughs> an instrument that you um, accompany yourself on because you yeah. get a lot of pleasure sitting there singing playing the guitar. Um, guitar's probably the best one. Um, and, you know, just see what happens. I mean, it's... It's something you'll develop as you go through secondary school, and then um, mm-hmm. you will start to have um, your diaphragm trained properly as you get a bit older. Uh, it's, it's just, um, I mean, I've had a very rewarding with people that I've taught over the years, and I'm mainly taught skills, um, except in my time at the college. And the number of girls who went to secondary school, and then suddenly, um, and decided to take music up as a career. I mean, I was quite shocked the other day to get an invitation from the um, head girl at a secondary school. I hadn't had any contact with her since she left our school, age 11, and she's now 18. And she's um, doing a music, she's a music scholar, and she's going off to university to read music. And it was really, I was really thrilled to think she thought of me after all those years and had no contact, but she wanted me to go and attend her recital. And so it was great to connect again. So you've made a lasting impression, Bobby. Yep. Well, that's interesting. But, um, you know, but just, yeah, keep enjoying your singing and the music. Practice hard because um, it doesn't come easy. And I think it's more difficult now than it was when I was younger um, to find time to practice. When I was younger, we didn't have the pressures, academic pressures of school life that you have now. And um, I've often found it sad that I've been teaching girls piano privately or some of them singing. And around the age of 15, they, they just stopped. I mean, the pressure on them over here is to get their grades to go on to university. And that's a, a shame, really, because um, they just stopped. And then some of them come back to me, you know, after they've graduated from university, because I'd like to take up the piano again. Um, I'm not teaching piano anymore, but um, it's nice to know that they think they would like to take it up. So um, it's getting the right balance and um, between your life and your music and um, I think you'll, you'll get there in the end. Well, hopefully, Bobby, when all this, this, this madness of this pandemic uh, is over, hopefully it gets over before too long, we, we can come and see you in London, mate. And just having a bit of a chat to you tonight, it's, it's bit of a, a bit of a wonderful life on your, your side of the, of the pond, mate. And I guess, what's, what's next, mate? What's the next adventure? Do you have anything lined up or is it just sort of keep pushing on and, and, and seeing what happens out there? Yeah, nothing lined up. I mean, I think it's important. I mean, my next stage in life is going to be retirement. But I also think it's so important that I think that retirement is the start of a new um, part of my life. It's not the end of my working life. It's just 
moving on to the next stage. And I think um, uh, it's, I don't think of the, the career ending, but a, a new one starting and a new period of work life, uh, which for me involves, will involve sort of in writing and working in different areas and perhaps becoming a governor of schools and bringing my experience of educational leadership to the development of um, lots of things that are happening in in the world at the moment. And sort of, uh, yeah, so, I mean, one of these days I will retire, but at the moment I'm, I'm not ready to retire and um, <laughs> just looking forward to And then, um, yeah, I don't see retirement as sort of putting your slippers on, putting your feet up and then, um, you know, doing that. It's, it's, it's a new beginning for me. It so, might it might be time to write a book, Bobby. <laughs> Yeah, it might, it might be, and who knows? Um, I never dismiss coming back to Australia um, in retirement. Uh, but part of the thing behind it, you know, I have not changed my passport or wanted to, but I thought, and you know, I I still keep my Australian driver's life going, life is going, because I thought, well, I didn't come back to Australia um, in my hundred years, hundredth birthday, and try and get a license again. But <laughs> keep anything going in Australia. Who knows what it needs to be. And that's what I quite like about life. You and, don't know. And look, it's absolutely you got your foot in both in both camps, mate, which isn't isn't a bad thing in this life. Well, listen, we've taken up too much of your time. I, you tell me it's thirty six degrees over there, mate. It might be time to go out in the back garden of your London apartment and uh, soak up a little bit of sun, Bobby, as we all we, we all enjoy, and especially in the UK anyway, where it doesn't burn the the skin off your back. It keeps it nice and nice and uh, well, exactly. nice and warm anyway. Yeah, it's, well, it's listen, a great day over here. Great to talk to you guys. Thank you very Thank much you. for your time, Bobby. I really, really appreciate it, mate. And um, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully speak again soon. And hopefully, when all this madness is over, we'll we'll hit the hit the streets of London together, mate. And we can show Lily some of the uh, some of that magnificent culture that exists in that in that great capital city of, of England. Yeah, well, I hope I hope it's all over soon because I mean, someone said to me the other day, we used to think that the number thirteen was unlucky, and then when life moved on, then we thought the number six 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 was unlucky. And now well, I'm convinced the number 2020 is unlucky. So, you know, you don't know what is ahead of you. No, we've got, yeah. we've got to make the most of it, mate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Thank, yeah, we do. Thanks uh, heaps for your time, Bobby. We'll just, we'll just sign off anyway, right. mate. Thank you heaps very much, okay. mate. See you, mate. Thanks for, thanks for your time, mate. Bye. Thanks, everybody, for Bye. listening. That was an episode of London Calling with Bobby Pritchett.